When you think of diversity and inclusion, what comes to mind? Oftentimes, this conversation dismisses physical and intellectual disabilities. Born with a rare bone disease, today's guest defied her own expectations as a student athlete and now advocates for inclusion and accessibility across UNC's campus and beyond. Listen to find out how sports changed her perspective as she continues to defy societal norms. Hi, welcome to Benched. This is your host, Jules Mukia, with our special guest today, Katie Sorensen, a former UNC rower, and I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Katie's story is super unique. She was a coxswain back in 2003, 2004? Yeah, graduated in 04. Yes, so she has a wonderful story to share with us today, and I'm really looking forward to having her on the podcast. So Katie, if you want to give a quick background on yourself and um, kind of your experience at UNC. Yeah, thanks again, first of all, for having me. I love um, I love UNC athletics. I loved my time here, and it was just such a, an important part of my life. So to be able to just talk about that and share my story with any everybody or anyone who will listen um, is, is really special for me. Um, I was born and raised in northern New Jersey, uh, the good part, uh, just outside of Manhattan. And uh, I was born with a bone disease called osteogenesis imperfecta. And so I've had a disability my whole life and never really imagined that I'd get to be an athlete, even though I always kind of considered my ath- myself an athlete at heart. Um, always wished I could play softball or soccer, or, you know, all these other things. I saw everyone else in my town playing. And before I, I came to UNC, I got a letter in the mail saying to try out for the rowing team. And um, I got the letter right before I went to physical therapy that day. And took the letter to my physical therapist and I was super bummed and wished I could do something like that and he he made me a bet to go try out for the team and I told him I you know didn't want to be rejected and laughed at so he made me a bet and he said hey go try out for the team and if you don't make it uh, he's like actually he said go take a sports physical and if you don't pass a sports physical um, he promised to take me to a Yankees game and I'm a huge Yankees fan so I said great I want to sit in the dugout right next to Derek Jeter and I want a new Yankees jersey uh, and, you know, a little ice cream hat souvenir cup thing. And he said, whatever you want. And so I uh, went to my doctor and I was like so embarrassed to go in the waiting room. I'm, you know, four foot one. I, had, I was on crutches and, and I said, uh, I think I whispered like, I'm here for a sports physical. And, and um, so I saw my doctor that day and she goes, you're cleared to play. And, and I was like, did you not recognize that I have a disability? Like, did we not talk about this after 18 years? And and she goes, we're not clear to play contact sports, but you can totally try out for the rowing team. So I realized I had only made the bet to try out, uh, to, to go for a sports physical and not actually try out for the team. So I totally played my cards wrong on that one. Should have like bet like a new car or something, but um, came to UNC and went to South Road for the Fall Fest and uh, Sarah Haney was there and some other rowers. And I was actually walking up to them and they, they saw me and they ran up to me and they're like, hey, will you come try out for the rowing team? And like actually that I'm, that's what I'm here for and you know they said can you yell and I was like I'm from New Jersey and I have a brother and a sister of course I can yell and they asked me if I could swim and uh, I said yeah I mean I'm not going to set an Olympic record but I can totally swim and um, so like great come try out and so I tried out for the week just thought they were you know being nice and cordial and um, never imagined I'd make the team and a week later I found out that I did um, which was really truly an experience that changed my life and um, graduated um, went out to California for grad school, got my doctorate in occupational therapy, and then lived out in California for almost 13 years and came back 
to UNC about three years ago. Um, I'm starting my fourth year on faculty in the Occupational Therapy Graduate Program. And when I was out in California, well, during that time, I fell and broke my hip pretty badly, ended up using a wheelchair full time. So I, when I was here as an undergrad, I was on my crutches the whole time. And now coming back as a faculty in a wheelchair has been um, a completely different experience, especially as it relates to physical access and the barriers that I face. And so it's been a passion of mine to make sure that all students of, of all physical abilities have the ability to um, you know, in, interact with campus the same way that I was able to when I was on my crutches and didn't really have any limitations. Yeah, no, that's that's so awesome that you're being an advocate for UNC students, and I think you have a really unique platform. Um, I think UNC athletes sometimes hold a larger weight, and so having that as your background and being like, you know, I was an athlete here, and it was much more accessible when I was on crutches, but now it's not the same. So I would love to talk a little bit more about that later, but before, I wanted to get into your time rowing at Carolina. Um, many people don't understand rowing or coxing so I wanted to give just a quick background um, for those of you that don't know there's a person who steers the boat and makes sure that no one dies um, and they're also setting the pace letting us um, know where we're going what's happening and they're called a coxswain and so um, Katie was a coxswain and I wanted to know did you um, cox a four or an eight or both or yeah I did both I mainly um, varsity ended up primarily being in the four but it was great. It was one of the few times in my life where being short and lightweight was a huge advantage. Um, <laughs> actually, before the ACC championships, I was underweight, and usually you have to you have to be like 110 pounds or something, and I think I was like 106 or whatever it was. And so, um, usually the the ACC will require that you put sandbags in the in the boat to make sure you're at least at the minimum. And since I was underweight the, the night before ACC championship, everyone kept giving me their cake to eat. I got so sick on cake that night because everyone was trying to trying to fatten me up. Um, hypothetically, sandbags way more, but it's really we ended up getting sandbags, but it was it was fine. Yeah, no, the, and that's see that's what I think is so wonderful that you had that opportunity and something um, that's deemed a disability was actually such a benefit in the sport because being lightweight being small as a coxswain um I'm sure your rowers loved you <laughs> the smaller the coxswain the less weight everyone else is pulling around and um I think that's just so wonderful that you got that opportunity and um I would love to know what it was like training and like what your favorite moments were um I know you shared a moment with me about um something you won at, um, or a record that you hold. So if you want to talk about that. Well, since you brought it up, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, training with the team was, was incredible. I really had so many surreal moments where I was thinking, do I, is this my life? Like, do I, am I actually doing this? Like here, you know, in the weight room with the soccer team and, you know, the training next to the women's soccer team in, in the weight room was, I'm like, what? Um, you know, and just the volleyball team, we became pretty good friends with them. We usually had a pretty similar weight, weight schedule, um, weight room schedule. And it was, it was totally surreal. And then on top of that, I would work out with our athletic trainer on my own and do actual like, physical therapy, um, a couple times a week on my own. So I, I was in ridiculously good shape, but the, I think the highlight of my career and probably even life uh, at, at 38 years later, I'm, I'm able to say is when I, um, I set the record in the weight room for most push-ups in a minute. And it was an unofficial record, which means no one can ever officially break it. But last I heard, no one has come close. I did 72 in a minute. 
which is actually 74, but they didn't count two of them, but whatever, it's a technicality. <laughs> but it was pretty cool in that moment. I was like, wait a minute, that means I beat like Michael Jordan and Vince Carter and Mia Hamm. Um, so I'm pretty ridiculously great upper body strength. It's My disability is mostly relegated to my legs, so um, push-ups were my jam. They, they still kind of are, but not, not as many as, as I did then. Um, so talking about kind of growing up and having a disability, what were some of the biggest obstacles you faced being a like kid to teenager and then being in college and then now? I think the biggest barriers are um, social and physical acceptance and inclusion. Um, people think that having a disability means, you know, I have a physical disability, so I'm speaking about that in particular, but people always assume that the hardest part is the physical disability aspect of it, but it, it's really not. Um, it's the social stigmas that I face growing up you know, being in middle school with, you know, four foot one on crutches with, you know, looking different was, was not easy. Um, it was, it was challenging just to really feel like I fit in and have friends and have people see me for me. People just, you know, saw my, my disability and, um, you know, I I couldn't ride a bike into town like everyone else. I couldn't go running around and, um, couldn't play soccer, couldn't do all the things that everyone else is doing. So that was, um, that was pretty socially isolating. And, but, uh, you know, and, and then, as it translates to being an adult now, people don't really judge me as much, or at least friends don't as much on the way that I look, but the physical access and the barriers that I face, especially here in Chapel Hill, are are tremendous. Whether I'm trying to get somewhere on Franklin Street and can't get into a building or a restaurant, or if I do get into the restaurant, I can't go to the bathroom. Um, you know, those are physical barriers that create social limitations and um you know, those are things that I didn't really experience as a kid very much because I was on my crutches, but uh, I have, a, you know, different limitations now. But I, I don't find that my disability really limits me. It's my environment that does. And so I'm really passionate about accessibility. And, um, you know, I, on campus, there's a, obviously a huge and, and appropriate movement towards diversity and inclusion. And it almost never talks about disability. And we could have, you know, they could have a party on campus and invite everyone of every you know, race, ethnicity, gender, right-handed, left-handedness, eye color, hair color, religion. But if there's no ramp to get into the building, um, I can't go. And so I just, it's just something that's really passionate to me, making sure that diversity and inclusion also includes people with disabilities. Um, And I like to say that disability is the the most inclusive minority group that there is. No one is exempt from it. Um, And so I just something that I have really come to become passionate about because I've, I've really felt a lot of those limitations as I've gotten older. Yeah, I think everything you said, especially the party, the party like thing you just said, that was really interesting. And I think that is a large issue at UNC. And I think the fact that even as someone who has the ability to walk upstairs and do things like that, I've noticed the lack of accessibility. And I think that does come from the fact um, both of my grandparents have always been um, well, they were on crutches and now they have scooters, but they had polio as young children and lost the ability to walk. Um, so I've kind of always noticed certain things. I'm like, oh, there's not a ramp or, oh, there's not an elevator. Um, but I could not imagine experience the, experiencing that and that being an additional challenge in college. Like being a freshman and dealing with the craziness that is freshman year and, and trying to fit in and trying to figure out where your classes are, let alone having to figure out if you're going to be able to even get to your classes, um, I think is something that's the fact that it, it, it isn't as much of a pressing issue at UNC as you would think is it, really sad. And I wanted to know, what do you think the 
the biggest steps UNC could take right now to kind of alleviate some of these issues or any suggestions you think um, are the most pressing that UNC could help with? I appreciate that you asked that. We have a, a great committee of people that um, there's the Disability Advisory Committee that I'm on and there are a lot of great people who are trying to do a lot of a lot of things to help make campus better. Um, to your point about, you know, going to a new building and not knowing, you know, if you can get in or not, um, it's so frustrating to get to a building that's on a hill. They're all on hills, by the way. And, you know, the front the front building has steps, so do I need to go to the right and find the, maybe hopeful that there's a door? Do I go uphill and go to the left? You know, I'm kind of guessing. And, um, you know, not, not having proper signage to indicate where, you know, where the door is that I need to go in is a huge issue that, that's definitely being worked on. Um, you know, I went to go to try to, uh, to get into Lenore the other day, or that was actually last year, not the other day, because campus is closed, but it was last semester. And I went from the pit, from the bookstore, and I was going to go to Lenore. And I didn't want to go up to the, you know, to the cafeteria on the, on the top floor. I just wanted to go up one floor. And on the pit side of the door um, on Lenore, you can't go up the elevator unless you have an access card, which I'm on faculty. I just wanted to go up to the one level and grab something to eat. But they wouldn't change the elevator to allow it to go up one floor. You had to swipe your card and only be able to go up to the third floor. I was like, I don't need to go up to the third floor. I just want to go up those eight steps. I'm like, oh, we have to go outside and all the way around the building again. So I think just, you know, people's attitudes towards wanting to make these changes is is honestly our biggest barrier. I pointed it out to the manager at Lenore and um, he was not interested in doing anything about it. And I, I know for a fact that elevators can be programmed to go up one floor or you have to swipe your card to get up on the third floor. You don't have to do it from the outside. And so, um, you know, I, I've pointed a lot of things out to a lot of people and there's been a lot of resistance still, which has been pretty disappointing, um, you know, given that this is a state school, we're funded by state money, we're funded by taxpayer dollars, and, um, you know, aside from that, but it just, it's, we're talking about diversity and inclusion, but we can't reprogram an elevator to go up so that I can go up and with my coworker and, you know, go up one floor in an elevator, I have to go all the way around the building. Um, yeah. It's pretty, pretty disappointing. I think, too, that kind of reminds me with the whole COVID restructuring of campus, I couldn't imagine the challenges that that would have presented too. Um, I know kind of before classes got pushed online, but I was walking around campus and it was like, you can only enter this door. You can only exit this door. Um, but like, for example, like Murphy Hall, how would you get down this? Like you would have to use the stairs. Like there's no, there was no other signage to kind of direct anyone else who maybe isn't able to use the stairs, which you know, that in itself, like, is just totally ignoring a part of the population at UNC, which is extremely disappointing. And I remember, um, this is a, this is a actually very positive story. Last semester, I had a class, and I believe it was in Cobb, and it was an extremely inaccessible room. You could only enter through one door in the whole building. It was the only one open because it was a residence hall. So, like, there was, some, for some reason, this random classroom in the bottom, and you had to go all the way down and then there was, you know, I I don't even know, the door, like, I don't think there was a ramp. I don't think, you know, there was any way to access this room. And then the room was, like, extremely tiny. And um, there was a boy in my class who was using a wheelchair. And he could not get to the classroom. And so our TA immediately reached out to people and got us a new classroom and, like, didn't even um, let it go on for more than a week. The first week... After that, he, like, made sure he could get him a classroom that was accessible. Um, and, like, also Cobb is, like, on the edge of campus. So, like, that's another thing. Like, 15 minutes 
to try to get there for anyone was a challenge. Um, I was jogging there. And so seeing a TA make that, like take that initiative without having to be asked by the student, um, I, I thought was a really great step. And I hope that there are more people at UNC that start to do that. But hearing your story like about Lenore and things like that, it, it really makes me sad because as you said, UNC likes to pride itself on diversity and inclusion. But I feel like a lot of times it really doesn't encompass that. There are a lot of things that still need to change at UNC for it to pride itself on being a diverse and inclusive university, as we've seen over the past year with many of the flaws that have been kind of highlighted by students at UNC um, and staff. So it, it's great to hear your suggestions. And I think you're right, like attitude is the first thing. When people are willing to make a change, then that change can happen. But if they're pushing back on it, it's pretty hard to, to take that next step. So um, I would love to hear more about what you do now and kind of your time after Carolina in California and then what made you want to come back to UNC? Yeah, I um, ended up going out to the University of Southern California for grad school, um, got my master's degree there and ended up using my wheelchair during that time. And it was just a huge change for me. I went from being a varsity athlete with the rec- you know, weight room record. Um, I was the first recipient of the John Lotz Award. So I was I was an athlete, like that was my identity. And then went out to go to school to become an occupational therapist and broke my hip halfway through grad school, ended up in a wheelchair. And everything just changed for me. I just um, had a really hard time just emotionally and you know socially, just, I mean, everything changed, even though I'd had a disability my whole life. Um, you know, going from crutches and being able to go upstairs and being an athlete to being in a wheelchair is, is a huge adjustment and um, ended up just really kind of being in a dark place, if I can be honest, and not knowing what I, you know, I mean, I knew I wanted to be an OT, but just really had a lot of physical limitations and um, really had challenges getting a job afterwards because people didn't want to hire me because I was in a wheelchair, which is illegal, but it happens. And um, just kind of ended up doing some soul searching. I ended up working um, an ADA compliance job in California, uh, up in the Bay Area near San Francisco. And I, I ended up, um, I was an athlete. So I went back to my athletic roots and it's like, well, if I'm going to be in a wheelchair, I'm going to play sports because I can play more now than I could even on my crutches. And so I, um, I was in San Jose, California, which is just below San Francisco and ended up, uh, there was a wheelchair tennis team like right down the road from where I live. So I joined, had never played tennis before. Um, I knew I needed to get a cute outfit, but that was about it. And so, um, you know, started playing and about six weeks in, um, our, our coach was like, Katie, go, we have a tournament in Napa, go play. And I was like, I don't even know where to line up. He's like, you'll figure it out. So I got a cute outfit, and that was pretty much all that I had going for me for that tournament. Um, but I was playing against this woman, and she was just beating me, like, handedly. It was embarrassing. Haney would have been like, oh, Katie. Um, but I was like, well, my strategy to try to even get a point the entire match was to talk to her while we were playing, which is totally inappropriate, but that was all I had to to try to do. And she ended up finding out that I was an occupational therapist, and I um, she turned out that she was a volunteer for an organization that did wheelchair distributions around the world. And so she got my contact info and was telling me more about it. And I've always loved traveling. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever keeps the conversation going, keep talking about it. And um, a couple months after the tournament, her organization, um, they were called the Mobility Project. They're no longer um, active, but they were, they called me and said, hey, we're going to Thailand. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure, why not? I'm 26, single. Let's just go to Thailand and, you know, with a bunch of strangers. Sounds great. And so I I went to Thailand and 
was still in my, you know, was using my wheelchair. And I was still just trying to figure out, like, why I was in a wheelchair and why did this happen to me and why couldn't I just be an athlete and really just struggling with changing my identity and, and accepting that I was going to be in a wheelchair pretty much full-time now. And we got to Thailand, and the first place we went was to an orphanage for children with disabilities, and there was uh, a little girl there with my same exact bone disease. And I had met other people with it before, but I had never met someone that I actually had the ability to, to help and to, to serve. Um, and I just was standing there, and I recognized, like, I didn't know who she was, but I recognized her disability, and I just had this out-of-body experience that happened, and I... Um, felt like I, you know, like got numb and my face was tingling and I thought I was going to throw up. I thought I was having a stroke, actually. I'm like, oh, gosh, this isn't good. But um, I literally heard God say, like, Katie, this is what it was all for. And I knew in that moment that my life had a purpose, that my disability had a purpose. And after that, um, I came home and just started doing some other trips around the, the world. I'd been to Ghana. Um, I've been there six times now. I went back to Thailand and everywhere I went, I was getting asked more and more to do different lectures or speak to parents or um, everywhere I went, I was being asked to speak. And I really just started loving it and just finding my my voice and finding that people loved my humor and, um, you know, growing up, like not really being socially accepted, just, you know, now being somewhere around the world and having everyone ask me to speak was just, uh, you know, a boost my self-esteem and my confidence and just really helped me find my purpose and identity and so I just decided after a couple of years of speaking and, and different places around the world that I really wanted to do that full time. And so I went back to, um, I was able to get my, my doctorate remotely to, at USC and graduated in 2016. And then um, I there was a job opening up here at UNC and my current boss was my former professor at USC. And I called her just to say hi and saw she was here and I was like, just saying hi, you know, I did my undergrad at UNC. And she's like, oh my gosh, I remember that. And it's like, hey, if you're ever hiring, let me know. And she's like, actually, we are. And so um, I was, uh, yeah, I applied and interviewed, and I just told wheelchair jokes for an hour, and somehow they hired me. <laughs> so, um, you know, now I'm back here and um, even more passionate about just speaking and educating people. And I, I love teaching in the classroom, but I find that where I have the most impact is when I'm just doing those natural, um, organic conversations with an owner of a store on Franklin Street that doesn't have a bathroom that's accessible and why that's important. And um, that's really what I'm passionate about. And so being back here in a wheelchair, um, I know what it's like to be here and not have any physical limitations and to feel those, uh, you know, I, it's so frustrating for me. I'm like, oh, I, I used to be able to get into this XYZ restaurant. I don't want to say the name of it because I don't want to have bad publicity for them. But there's a famous place on Franklin Street that, that everyone goes to that, that doesn't have a wheelchair accessible bathroom. And when I talked to them about it, they're like, well, it's never been a problem before. And I'm like, well, it's a problem now. I need to go to the bathroom. I just had three sweet teas. Um, so, you know, being able to have those those conversations is really important. And to be in a place like Chapel Hill that I love, um, but really needs a lot of, of awareness and advocacy for accessibility has um, really just been fulfilling for me. That's so awesome to hear. And it was really interesting that... Um, even though sport was taken away from you in a lot of ways, sport, again, opened up a new chapter of your life. Um, that tennis match kind of just, like, opened everything up. And that whole story gave me chills, by the way. But um, I think, too, I was really interested to hear more about your experience when you met this young girl with the same condition. And um, what was that like for the both of you? And, like, how did that, how did that interaction go? Yeah, it was actually... 
really cool. I was super nervous for some reason because I didn't know what to do or what to say. Well, I, I knew exactly what she needed as far as a wheelchair goes. Um, I just, which was supernaturally a gifting at that moment. But, um, you know, we, we talked through an interpreter, um, but she asked me a lot of questions. I think she was eight years old, eight, eight or nine. But she asked me a lot of questions about me as an adult. Like, do I drive? Can I live alone? Um, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? She, and um, at the moment, I just was answering her questions factually. But later, later on, I kind of reflected back on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, she was asking me if, if, if she had hope, like for hope for her future. And um, I know that sounds kind of cheesy or whatever, but I, I just realized that I you know, was able to give her that gift because those are questions that I had as a kid that I didn't have anyone answer for me. And I didn't know what my future would look like. I had, I would have no idea that I'd be a varsity athlete, travel the world, have been to six of seven continents, continents, live in California, and then come back and be a professor at UNC. Like that was not on my list of, you know, expectations for my life. So my life has far exceeded those, but to be able to, to share that with her. And then uh, on other trips I've been to, I've spoken with parents who have said, you know, I never thought my daughter could be a therapist or my daughter could go to school and my daughter could be a teacher. But now that you've shown me you can, like, I know she can too. And so um, to be able to, to use my disability as, as a gift for other people has has turned it from what was the worst thing that ever happened to me and the thing that I was ashamed of and depressed about to honestly the greatest thing that's ever happened to me and something that, you know, you were talking about my platform. It's literally a rolling platform. And, and I say that, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but I get to go... Um, you know, and just share with people, like, hey, like, you know, people with disabilities are people, too. Like, we have dreams and hopes, and we can do things, and, um, you know, we deserve just as much respect and, and hope and dignity as everybody else. Yeah, that's so awesome, and I wanted to ask you um, how you got into occupational therapy and, like, what kind of sparked that interest, and did you know before college, or was it something that you decided to do during college? It's actually a funny and slightly embarrassing story, so I... Um, <laughs> Grew up in northern New Jersey. I went to um, Columbia Presbyterian, the major hospital associated with Columbia University, was where I had almost all my surgeries growing up. And sometimes I'd be in the hospital after surgery and inpatient, and then they would take me down to the to physical therapy. Um, and I never had occupational therapy growing up, which, by the way, for those of you who don't know what occupational therapy is, we are a rehabilitation science that helps people do the things that are meaningful to them. Um, so the word occupation comes from things that occupy your time. So physical therapy will help someone rehab their knee or their shoulder or their hip or more of a specific body part. But occupational therapists, we help people um, be able to do the things that they want to do. So if someone has a stroke, for example, and they can't use half their body, how are you going to change a diaper if you're a mom with a young kid or um, tie your shoes with one hand or play tennis, um, you know, things like that. So we help people do the things that are the activities of daily living and things that are purposeful to them. That was a description of what I do. And so rewinding now back to being in the physical therapy department at Columbia Presbyterian, um, everything there was written in English and Spanish. And so it said physical therapy and then underneath it said occupational therapy. So I always thought occupational therapy was just physical therapy in Spanish. <laughs> and so when someone suggested occupational therapy, I was like, I don't speak Spanish. I was like, oh, wait, no, it's its own thing. Um, and I, I always knew I wanted to go into healthcare, and um, my dream was actually to, to go into rehab and go work at Columbia Presbyterian and work alongside my doctor and like be his pediatric OT for for his uh, his patients. Um, but God had other plans, and 
Um, I kind of just never ruled out OT, and I, I feel like OT picked me more than I picked it, but it's pretty much been the perfect profession for my um, professional experience and the way that I just look at the world and I just naturally adapt things. Or um, my, my favorite story of all time was I was in Ghana one time and there was a little two-year-old girl and her mom, she, she had arms, but she didn't have any hands or, or fingers or both of her forearms kind of ended in stumps. And her mom handed her to me and said, I need her to be able to eat so she can go to school. And I was like, um... Yes, I'm in Western Africa with no splinting material, nothing. I had no, I had nothing that I could use to help this this two year old. And I said, why is it so important for her to be able to eat? Like, I mean, I knew, but I want to know what, what the what the real reason behind it was. The mom said because she can't go to school unless she can feed herself. I was like, okay, so we can we can figure this out. And I thought about it all day, and I was like, I have no idea what we're gonna do to help her. Um, and I went to the bathroom, which might be TMI, but I got to the end of the toilet paper tube the toilet paper roll and the toilet paper tube was there and I was like oh my gosh I can use this as a splint so I grabbed it and I replaced the roll don't worry and then uh used some duct tape because I don't travel without it and duct taped a spoon to the toilet paper roll and then slid it over the little girl's arm with a handkerchief to, so it would stay on and she was able to feed herself and that that is OT right there just adapting your environment and doing using the things around you to be able to help you achieve your goals um, I think that's when I peaked in life, second only to the push-up contest, but I could have found a profession that fits me perfectly. Yeah, so do you think like some of your experience and experiences in having to be creative and learn how to do things a little bit differently has helped you become a very successful um, occupational therapist? Yeah, I, I, like yesterday I was at the grocery store and I really wanted to get some popcorn that was on the top shelf. And I couldn't reach it. And usually I'm pretty creative about finding something. And I was like, how am I going to get this popcorn off the top shelf? And it was, it had like a little like holder on it. So I couldn't just like knock it off. It was kind of stuck between like a hold it onto the shelf thingy. And so I went and I found some barbecue tongs the next aisle and came back and then just pulled it off the shelf. Um, and yeah, I think I just naturally think creatively. So I, um, because I've had to do it myself. So that's definitely an advantage that I have, um, and being able to be an OT and then teach my students how to be an OT as well. Do you have any advice for kind of, I think this is an interesting question, but I think it would actually be helpful for a lot of people that are in college. Like how can you be more of an ally to someone who has a disability or what can you do to help push these initiatives along? Like what can we do to just be an ally? I think first of all, just being aware that there are challenges out there that that exist that you want to be aware of, I think is number one. Um, you know, just being aware that there there's information out there and that there's this whole world of having a disability that, that's challenging that people don't experience, number one. And then talking to people with disabilities is number two. Ask them, like, what's challenging for you? Um, like, how can I help? Like, what do you need? Not in the sense, like, do you need me to tie your shoes? What do you need? But do you need us to, you know, go and, like, rally against somebody or... Um, you know, talk to the manager at Lenore or have a DTH, you know, article about it or something like that, just to have the elevator be programmed differently. Um, and then the third is, you don't have to actually be in a wheelchair to know what it's like to be in a wheelchair. Um, you know, go to a building, next time you go on campus or go to a class, try to go without using any stairs. Just try to spend a whole day without having to take one single step up a, a flight of stairs um, and see what that's like. And you know, it's just something you can do to challenge yourself and 
you know, don't use a bathroom unless it's, you know, 32 inches wide. The door is 32 inches wide. Not that you have to carry tape measure around. But you know the difference between, like, a wider door and a non-wider door. Um, you can't use a bathroom unless there's a wheelchair-accessible stall, like, even if you can. But, you know, those are things that you can do just to make yourself more aware without having to talk to anybody or, you know, rent a wheelchair for a day or anything like that. And so those are those are things that people can do. But I generally appreciate when people ask me questions like, what do we need to work on or um, you know, what, what are the challenges that you have and, and how can we help? So thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for asking that. No, I, I'm happy to. I think that's something that a lot of people could hopefully get out of this conversation, uh, when they listen to it is what can I do, um, just to be an ally. And I think that's something that's become such a big thing at UNC. Obviously I think there is a lot of work to be done, but, um, I think the student body as a whole is doing slowly, um, is, is moving towards trying to be, the greatest ally overall that they can be. Um, There's obviously exceptions to that, but (laughs) uh, I really appreciate all the time you've given me today and to come share your story. And also it's always great to talk to a former rower. So thank you for um, coming on. But I just wanted to ask you if you had any closing thoughts or anything you, any advice or any, anything you wanted to share before we close out. Yeah. Just to kind of, you know, piggyback off what you you were saying, um, you know, there, there is a huge push for diversity and inclusion. And I, I encourage everyone, every time that conversation is happening, make sure that people with disabilities are also talking, you know, b- being spoken about in the conversation and, and not being forgotten because there aren't that many people with disabilities on campus. And there are, there are arguably way more conversations going on than people with disabilities can be represented at. And so um, please don't forget about us. Please remember that it's more than just curb cuts and ramps too. It's, it's, just about you know knowing how to speak to someone with a disability and knowing you know how to how to talk to someone and just there's etiquette involved um you know do people know like not to just come up and touch my wheelchair you'd be surprised how many people do um you know so just those kinds of things and that are that I would really love to see are, you know be part of the fabric of our campus as we move forward to be more inclusive and and diverse and um the other thing i would just say is you know, if you have a friend with a disability or if you know anyone with a disability or a family member, encourage them to go be an athlete. Like, it it really, truly changed my life. And I can say um, with certainty that Sarah Heaney, the, the, the coach who was my coach at the time, will go down as one of the people who made the biggest impact on my life and her decision to allow me to be an athlete. I mean, it changed everything for me. Um, it gave me a confidence and um, it's, it's why I went to Thailand on a whim, knowing nobody. I'm like, I could do that. Um, I don't know that I would have done that if I hadn't been on the rowing team. And uh, I know I don't, I don't know that I would have the confidence to move to California by myself or do a lot of the things that I've done. And so, um, you know, people with disabilities can be athletes too, and not just Paralympians. There's a whole bunch of levels of, of being an athlete. And, and so, you know, just remembering that even if you're just playing tennis, you can play tennis with someone who has, who's in a wheelchair, even if you're standing and, um, yeah, don't be afraid to include people with disabilities in all aspects of your life, um, including sports as well, because it's, it's so meaningful. And I, I love when people want to like, hey, want to go shoot a basketball? I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, let's go. Um, thanks for thinking about me. Like, thanks for remembering that I like to do that too, even though I'm in a wheelchair. So yeah, thank you so much, Katie. And thank you everyone for tuning in. This has been another episode of Benched with your host, Jules Makia, and your guest, Katie Sorensen. Want to share your story, whether you prefer to share on a podcast, in a video, on a panel, or in a written blog, we cannot wait to hear from you. Just go to U-N-C-U-T 
uncutchapelhill.com. That is uncutchapelhill.com. Click get involved and then share your story. Amplifying your voice has never been so easy.